The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. I've been doing some research on what's most important to business leaders, and I've heard three major themes. Number one, their employees are burned out and feel overwhelmed. Number two, they're concerned about customer retention. And number three, they want to address customer friction, whether it's controllable or not, but they need actionable results. As a result, I've created the 120-day Quick Start, a four-step program designed to go from current state assessment to specific strategies to get you actionable results in 120 days. If you want to make a quick impact, check out empoweredcx.com for more information. I'd love to talk to you. Just like a car driving down a road, um, if you you know your wheel, your steering wheel is pointed in one direction, and so too must your uh, tires and wheels pointed in the same direction as the steering wheel. But eventually we run into a roadblock, we run into um, a speed bump or a pothole. And, and, and for every speed bump and every pothole that we hit, our tires, our wheels lose their alignment with the steering wheel. It's not going to be noticeable. It's always going to be some fraction of misalignment. But, but as that happens over time, um, even though your steering wheel is pointed straight, uh, the car starts to drift left or right. And um, at first, the drift is imperceptible. But over time, you start to realize that, oh man, I'm, I'm actually 10 degrees off of where I'm pointed. And that's kind of a problem, especially if there's a wall on the left or the right. Well, my guest today on the Delighted Customers podcast is Sammy Newar. And uh, Sammy is a customer experience professional. He's got a wide range of background. And I am very excited because we're going to talk about some cool stuff, the importance of using data to drive decisions in the world of customer experience for business performance and and a whole lot more. Um, So first, let me welcome Sammy to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Thanks for being here. And if you don't mind, share with our audience a little bit about your background and how you got involved in the world of customer experience. Yeah, sure. So I started out as a pure market researcher back in the day before CX was even a term. Um, and uh, it was interesting. It felt like school, but I'm getting paid, um, which was fun. Uh, but it got stale because it was just based on collecting data about the, what the market was saying. I graduated to continuous improvement um, 
that was also a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I learned how to apply that research skill toward something specific to improve in the business. So it was a more applied research as opposed to just research for the sake of data. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, learned a lot too. And then I kind of connected the dots between, you know, research and VOC uh, to and, and continuous improvement, connected those dots um, to form a experience governance program that essentially, um, you know, uses the data for the sake of improving the business. And we improve the business on behalf of the customers. Um, of course, it benefits the business directly, but it also is meant, it's purposed with benefiting the customer. And if we can't articulate that customer benefit, then it's kind of a waste of time. And so that was our premise. Um, and so, you know, my my trajectory in those days when I started at Verizon led me to a manufacturing company where I created a CX program there from the ground up. And then beyond that, I joined Medallia for a few years as a consultant to help Medallia clients manage their own experience programs. So, and then here we are today. And here we are. So, uh, so going from an absolutely huge organization like Verizon, um, and if you don't mind sharing with us, like, it's such an ocean, like which area of that business were you in? And then going to a, a smaller, although not tiny consulting firm, Medallia is not tiny by any means, but it's much smaller than Verizon. So what was that like? Oh, yeah, that's a huge difference. Um, yeah, I was in the Verizon business side of Verizon. Verizon's got three business units, uh, principal business units, wireless, which everybody knows about. Um, the consumer space, which uh, people know about if you're in the Northeast of the U.S. And then the business business unit, which is B2B, um, selling to large enterprises. Uh, so I did that for 17 years, 17 blissful years. And then moving on to a consulting uh, role within Medaya, which is a software company, um, implementing software that enables customers or companies to uh, manage and understand their own customers' experiences. And so um, that was a pretty big change. On the Verizon side, you're talking hundreds of thousands of employees, uh, countless SKUs and products and varieties of products, huge organizations that you're selling to. Um, and even though I was in a B2B side of Verizon, that doesn't mean I didn't interact with consumers um, or even wireless customers. Um, there was a lot of bleed over, especially as you get into the the smaller end of the scale, um, you know, where the lines are blurred between the B2C and the B2B worlds, especially with wireless. Wireless is a wonderful technology that helps to blur those lines between your personal life and your business life. Um, and so a lot of our interactions and a lot of the work that we did and the business side always had a bleed over effect on the consumer space in some form or fashion. Um, and I kind of saw the same things that, you know, when I was, at Medi when I was a consultant at Medallia, um, you know, working with clients in various industries and segments um, kind of helped, uh, you know, expose some of the, some of the challenges that, um, that, you know, companies encounter as they design and implement their own experience management programs. Um, and these were a lot of the same challenges that I faced when I was a practitioner um, in their shoes. Yeah. 
So for those people who aren't exactly familiar with Medallia's offering, since you did spend some time there, is it, is it pretty much a VOC platform or is it really a lot more than that? It's a lot more than that. At its core, VOC is, um, is really how it's sort of its foundation. Yeah. Um, gathering uh, feedback information um, and making it available in real time um, in an intuitive platform that anybody can access. Um, that's the premise, the underlying premise at its core. Um, but the question is, um, you know, do you gather that VOC through surveys? Do you gather it through um, video recordings, through audio recordings? Can it ingest signals from multiple sources and multiple vehicles? Does it always have to be a survey? And the answer is it doesn't always have to be a survey. It could be... Um, a direct source of data or an indirect source of data like social or recording uh, data. So when I was a practitioner at that manufacturing company, um, we, and of course we were doing surveys, but we were also pumping information into the platform from our existing databases. Of course, in like most post-sale interactions, um, we were recording these interactions for quality purposes. I use air quotes um, because I kind of say that tongue in cheek for quality purposes. Yes, of course, the recordings are used for training and improvement internally, but once it's used for that purpose, what happens to the recording? And usually what happens is nothing happens. It sits in a database collecting dust or, uh, or it gets deleted and purged, which would be a shame because I consider that data that sits uh, that recording, whether it's video or audio, as valuable information that could be and should be mined. Um, and when I was in that manufacturing role, of course, we were doing our usual surveys, but we were also pumping those recorded conversations, those recorded interactions into the Medallia machine. And then that Medallia machine using AI and text analytics was parsing that information, tagging it at the account level and the transaction level and the interaction level. Um, and then also tagging it for sentiment and for, um, you know, you know, being able to tell a story of what happened and how they felt. Um, and so it just became an additional data point that otherwise would not have been used, um, which it's, I kind of equated to, you know, that database with all those recordings, I kind of equated to your house in Malibu that you never go to. Um, it's so valuable, uh, and could provide an additional enrichment to the feedback that you're collecting from your client base, but oftentimes gets overlooked or is not even thought about. Yeah. Well, and I think, so, so I want to pull a gem out. I mean, what I'd like to do is when I have guests on and they say something, I want to kind of double click on something that it might be worthwhile and noteworthy for our audience. And, and that is this idea of unstructured data right? That's a term used to categorize data that we don't typically get through usual channels like direct um, through an electronic survey, for example, get an email survey, but it could be call center conversations that are recorded or could be what's called verbatim, which are uh, comments that customers include in survey responses that may may be the reason for their score for something. Those Those are examples of unstructured data. And it, it, back when I first started, first of all, it wasn't even available. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, when it became available, it was very expensive. And companies really didn't, didn't even think 
they they knew how to how to use it or how to get how to get to it. And and the the thinking was probably I was included in this group that you know if you get ten or thirteen percent response rate on an electronic survey, you've got a good proxy for your entire customer base. Well, actually, that's that's not accurate at all. And the other eighty-five, whatever it is, ninety percent, um, can now with things like machine learning and neurolinguistic programming and artificial intelligence, you know, the costs have come down, the speed is, has gotten better, and the ability to deliver that information. To your point, like down to the not just the vertical, not just to the account to the individual, but to the transactional, that in interaction that that customer had. And so it's really uh, transforming as we speak, isn't it, Sammy? It, it's amazing because I'll, I'll tell you, um, the what the technology enables today is not anything new. Um, it actually, it, this was something that my colleagues and I at Verizon, before I left, we were doing this. We were, um, we were, in, we were, reviewing call recordings from service interactions. Um, we just did it uh, for one subset of customer, one segment that purchased one particular product bundle. And we reviewed it over the course of six months, like all the interactions that would occur within a service environment for one segment, purchasing one bundle of products and really only doing it anecdotally, but being able to tell a story of mm. the journey that the customer goes through to get some help to resolve an issue and the six to eight months, you know, journey that they had to go through to get something fixed. It really humanizes that, that interaction and turns that B2B environment into more of a human interaction because at the end of the day, even though you're working with the business, there's a person behind um, that is that has a lot of pressure put on them to get some answers. And it's up to us to provide them the answers because we're the supplier, we're the provider. So we did that work when I was at Verizon. That work was very anecdotal, very specific to one segment and to one product bundle. And it took us about it took us about three months to do that work, to parse out that information across an eight-month time span of data. And, and it, it was uh, three of us doing that work. So three people, three full-time resources doing that work for about two and a half months, right? And it was only done for anecdotal examples to sort of humanize things to get people to pay attention to the information that we had. Yeah. Um, the next question is the CMO loved it. Like he absolutely loved it. He loved it, the humanization of the customer and really brought to life their pain so that we can get, you know, the right resources applied to a business process. But before he could fully commit, his next question to us was, this is great, Sam and Carrie. Carrie was really the mastermind behind this. Yeah. Um, you know, this is great. But can we scale this up? We need to scale this up. We need to do this across the entire segment, not just for a, a subset of interactions, not just a sample. Right. Can we do it for the population of the segment? We're like, no, we can't do That's impossible. We can't scale this up because we literally did this by hand. We did this manually. The beauty of the technology today is that it, it can take that work that we did. It took us two and a half months and it could do it in fractions of a second. Wow. You feed it that data. And the beauty of it is if you wanted to view it in aggregate at the segment level, no problem. But hey, if you wanted to drill down to a specific product and a specific segment and a certain point in time and you put a range to that, 
it can do that too with a few clicks of a mouse. That's what's amazing about the technology is in, in the same instance that you want to look at things strategically at a, at a 30,000 foot view, yeah. um, you could also drill down to the sort of widget level view within a few clicks of a mouse and be able to look at that and really parse out exactly what happened, why did it happen, and who did it happen to. Um, that's what's amazing about the technology is the ability to scale it up and, and to look at it in aggregate and drill down at the same time. So that's a that's a really important gem. And then the other gem in what you just shared to me is there's a yin and a yang when it comes to voice of the customer uh, and customer experience management. Because we're, we're here today, you know, kind of one of the, the topics we're talking about is data and data to drive decisions. At the same time, you very appropriately, I, I think, said we've got to appeal, we've got to tell stories, we've got to have the data to tell stories and humanize it because we're appealing to the emotions of leaders in the organization, senior leadership in the organization, as you said, to get the resources we need to do our job, right? So it, it feels to me like there's, um, there's a yin and a yang to this. Absolutely. I mean... Um... Data is, you know, there's, I think there are two sides of data, um, but only one of those two sides is, is understood. There's the rational mm. side of data, you know, hard metrics, KPIs, a, a black and white story of numbers. Um, so the data is definitely, the rational side of data is definitely fully understood and embraced. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think the other side of data that does exist but isn't as commonly understood or even appreciated is the emotional side of data. Um, you know, let's look at a Likert scale, a traditional Likert scale that you something you would typically see in, in, in any survey or VOC research, right? Yeah. A zero to ten, for example. It it's a, a hard rational number. Right, zero, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten levels of happiness, and it's p very rational, but it also conveys an emotion. Mm. Right, if I'm passive, if I'm a seven or an eight, if I'm passive on that scale, what does that tell you? Right, I'm neither happy nor sad. I'm sort of, eh, I'm indifferent. Yeah. And if I'm indifferent, um, then what does that what does that mean about my potential behavior? Um, I I could reduce my spend. I have no reason to increase my spend. I have no reason. I may not have a reason to reduce it. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna float along. And how? What does that do for progress? Um, so the emotional state of um, of, of somebody or something that's conveyed by the data is not really fully understood or even appreciated by a lot of organizations. And I think that's a shame. And that's one of the gems is right. As CX leaders, you know, to humanize it, to pull the emotion out of the data because stories, you know, our friends Dan and Chip Heath, who wrote, who wrote the book made to stick, talked about the importance of telling emotional stories yep. because it, it impacts both sides of the brain. Yeah. I mean, emotions um, generate memory, 
Yes. Uh, you um, you tend to remember something that happens if if it had a um, a positive or negative. You had a positive or negative reaction at the time that it happened. Yeah. Um, and and the the premise would be that if you can remember it, um, and if it were positive, then maybe you'll share it with somebody. Yeah. And and hopefully enrich their lives and give them an opportunity to interact with that brand. And if it's negative, maybe you warn somebody. You serve as a as the lighthouse to warn them. Oh, don't go there. Uh, yeah. I had a really bad interaction with so and so. So um, that's the power of emotions, and that's just scratching the surface. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned this idea of of an of the emotional connection on the scale, on a typical Likert scale, but also the the idea of a passive. Um, in in another world I was in, the service profit chain. Um, some Harvard, most people in CX for a long time are familiar with that. It was a Harvard Business School study and then became a book. And the idea essentially is, you know, your your customers are only going to be as happy as your employees, and the chain starts with the strategy, then goes to the employees, then goes to the customers, then goes to business performance or profitability. Um, and they used to call the people who were passives back then mercenaries, meaning they're willing to flip whichever direction the kind of the wind blows. If someone came to them with an offer, a discount or something, hey, their, their feet aren't in the ground. You know, they're willing to, to move. And I appreciate it because, you know, I, that's why I chose the kind of the value proposition of Empowered CX, my company is turning in different customers into loyal fans. And, um, and that was validated a, a couple of months ago, maybe six weeks ago. Um, we had Rob Markey on the show. And Rob talked about, I said, why did you pick those inflection points to call it a different name? You know, zero to six. And, and I'm talking about net promoter score now, mm -hmm. net promoter score. Zero to six is called a detractor. Seven and eights are a Sammy set of passive. And then nine and 10 are called a promoter. And he said, because Mark, we noticed a different set of behaviors, a distinctly different set of behaviors. Um, and as we looked across, you know, volumes of data, when it got to the six, the six to the seven, there was, a, and then, the, and then the eight to the nine, you know, and they, behave in very, very different ways when you get to those inflection points. And that's why they came, came up with it. And there was some variation, you know, between maybe a zero and a one and, you know, two and a three, but those were the big inflection points. And um, so it's a big deal. And I, I, I want to get your opinion on this because what all the data that I'm seeing right now is that across almost every industry, customer satisfaction and other VOC type metrics like no promoter score are down. So customers are not getting the delivery of the experience they used to get. And some people would argue that their expectations aren't going down, their frustrations mm -hmm. going down, and that's creating a lot of volatility and it's creating a lot of shoppers where people before were more loyal to brands. What, what are your thoughts about that? I've seen the same thing. I, I was seeing it before COVID. Um, I was seeing that um, that heightened expectation. <clears throat> and I think that heightened expectation pre-COVID 
was the result of actual improvements in business operations and service delivery and fulfillment. I think companies were genuinely improving in how they serve their clients and what the experience effect was. Um, And with that improvement, they were essentially raising the bar for themselves. Um, Because when, when, when you do things consistently well for your client base, um, of course they're happier, right? Their experiences are better and they're happier. And they expect you to stay at that heightened level of service. Um, they don't expect you to, they don't expect that bar to go down. They expect you to remain high. And so their expectation is, is increased. And that was happening before COVID. Um, I think what COVID has done is uh, sp- put a spotlight on that and actually um, emphasize it even more. Um, and in some cases, brands uh, that were able to adapt to the environment during that strange three-year period, um, those companies that were able to adapt elevated their service levels. They met that expectation and in some cases may have exceeded it um, because they realized they needed to keep their customer base happy because they could easily churn. Um, but I think uh, I think like a rubber band, um, they may have stretched themselves during that time. Yeah. And now, um, not to say that COVID's over because it's not over. It's just sort of, it's drifting toward the background now. Now um, it seems to be under control at least, um, or at least better understood, but it's still there. Um, <clears throat> but that rubber band that was being stretched during that three-year time period is now um, building some slack and loosening. And that loosening of that rubber band um, organizations can't keep up that tension that they had before and, and they're having to to loosen the slack a little bit. Um, and so I think that is uh, causing them to not be able to maintain that heightened level of expectation that they increased over time. Yeah, I like, I like your example of the rubber band, the stretch rubber band. Um, it, it's, it's just so interesting. We could talk a lot about the impact of a pandemic, but I I want to I want to go back to some of the other uh, things that you and I talked about before we got together here today on the podcast, and this idea of what happens through M and A activity and the way all data relates to that. Because um, as I, I tend to focus a lot on financial services, but true in, in tech as well, there's so much compre- market compression and consolidation that's happened, and so you've got you know organiza- large organizations coming together. Talk to us about the impact of, of the data. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as companies acquire other companies, um, there's, you know, there's always going to be a due diligence period in which they evaluate the liabilities and the assets of any company. Um, what I think is often overlooked is recognizing the data within an, a, a proposed acquisition company, recognizing um, you know, the value of the data and recognizing that data as an asset. And I think the the difficulty in companies to be able to do that is maybe the data is in different places. It's not, it may not be cataloged or categorized in such a way that allows um, an acquiring company to evaluate its value and to calculate a value. And that's a shame because it's a missed opportunity for both the acquirer and the acquired um, because if it were cataloged, if it were tracked and 
um, documented, um, and, if, and if it were measured in terms of its value, then that acquired company could actually use that as leverage to increase their price. They could, they would consider their data, along with their people, a critical asset um, that could be, you know, valued and used as leverage to increase their overall value of the brand. Um, but I think most companies don't even look at that. Yeah, I'm, you know, um, uh, the book Customer Base Asset with Dr. Peter Fader starts a book. In the book, he talks about um, a board meeting that he was at, and he asked one of the board members um, how many customers they had. Um, simple question, right? Simple question, and nobody, nobody, ran the, nobody around the table can tell him the answer to that. Now, they knew all about you know, revenues and they knew about earnings, profitability, but they didn't know anything about, you know, these things that drive, drive those things. So we're talking, we're talking uh, about data in general. I, mean, I think the, the grasp of financial data is pretty darn good, but when it comes to customer-based data, not so much, right, Sammy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've encountered this in almost every organization I worked for or, or with um, when I was at Verizon. I asked those simple questions. How many customers do we have? Um, how many products does customer X uh, subscribe to? Uh, which products? Can I, can I get that enumerated list for customer X? Um, how, how often do they order X product? Um, what, how much of it do they order? Uh, what frequency at what price? And what's the cost to serve? Nobody can answer that question. Um, and, and some of the things that I, I worked on while I was there was to arrive at least at partial answers to that question. Mm. Um, and even if somebody could answer it, I would get different answers from different people. Um, so the variation is what I used as my business case to formulate some of the, um, the models that we built in the program that I used to run um, to arrive at some of those answers, at least better answers. Um, so, you know, like simple things. The, one of the things that I built when I was at Verizon was a, um, an, an order volume dashboard. So for, um, for segment X, uh, what is the order volume for segment X given a certain time period? Um, and can I take that and drill it down to uh, region X or customer X um, and then product X? Can I drill it down and um, those were difficult answers to get to at that large company. Um, and they, even if you got to those answers, you would get different numbers depending on who you talk to. And so one of the things that we sought to do was to arrive at a concrete answer that was reliable with a certain amount of um, error that we're willing to accept right? And, and, um, and make it available so that it's not just in one person's fingertips. It's available to everybody who needs to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just to just to affirm what you're saying is I spent a lot of time with a group of people <clears throat> um, like a committee at the bank I worked at trying to come up with something similar, a way to represent either the volume and or the value of the customer base um, so that we can move it so we can move it in a positive direction. And it took a long time to figure out something that was we could agree upon that we could get the data around and we ended up with something called the client engagement index, uh, which was a roll up of five categories of 
ways that customers interacted with us. So it was from the customer's viewpoint because we were trying to get a sense of how loyal they were, how engaged they were, not how much we sold to them. It was essentially a share of wallet uh, metric, but it, it was a way for us to say, okay, if a customer has three of the five, they're probably more sticky than if they had two. And of course, which two and which products did, did make a difference. Mm -hmm. But those, those you can get to in wave two. So I, I'm just going to say another gem is what, you know, Sam, you talked about the ability to get, get some core data about what the value of your customer base is. In your example, you shared, you talked about the order volume from a particular segment over a particular period of time. Sounds very simple, but you know, not so easy to get. I mean, you got people probably, I remember kind of, I'll just use the word persuading, heavily persuading certain people to try and get data. Can you relate? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, before I built that tool, um, the act, the, this was part of my business case for the tool. Um, of course, I used that to my advantage to build it. But, um, but in order to prove the need for it, I had to articulate like what what was my journey to get a simple question answered <laughs> right, how much volume do we generate in segment x in period you know from this period to this period uh, and, and nobody could give me that answer and so that the way the the approach to get to that answer before the tool was ask uh ask person in it department x and then ask person in it department y um wait two and a half weeks because they got to go get it. Yeah. Uh, and you're asking two different people because the data is not in one place. It's in multiple places. And so uh, person X is diligent um, and they provide you the data within a couple of days. And then person Y is super busy and probably on vacation. And so you right. wait up, you wait a, a month to get it and you eventually get it. You merge the data sets together and that takes a whole lot of effort because it's not the same. All the columns and definitions are all different because they're coming from different systems. So you have to somehow normalize that data, merge it so it's in one data set. Um, there's inevitably going to be error in the work that you do because it's not your data. You're you're just reading what they gave you, right? And maybe you have to get them to answer some clarifying questions. What does this mean? What does that mean? Is it the same, right? And they're like, okay, cool. So you figure that out eventually. Figure another week for that to get figured out if they get back to you in time. Before you know it, you've wasted three or four months of your time to arrive at that simple answer, and um, you eventually get to it. But the time to get to it and the effort to put in, it's probably not worth. It's not worth the time or effort because it's just all you've answered is one simple question for at an aggregate level that doesn't give you any sense of detail or any sense of context. Um, but it's the exercise of trying to get to that answer um, that I used as my business case to, you know, can we do this at scale? Um, and can we do it in an, in an environment that anybody could access without having to ask someone for it? They can just go get it themselves. Yeah. Well, two, two things I want, I want to double click on there. One is um, it, it's, it's hard work, right? And, and that doesn't mean that it's not valuable information. You know, so we need to, as CX leaders or business leaders, you know, we need to ask ourselves, 
what met, what data, what metrics do we do we want to get? Because what are we going to do with it? What's the outcome of that? So have that uh, end in mind clear, and then we can reverse engineer and talk about that. Um, and then two is, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Well, if you don't know, you know, if you're trying to move a number and you don't know what that is, how, you know, you just, you just, by a squirrel, you know, what is, what is a blind squirrel is lucky, can find nuts or whatever. I'm not good with metaphors. <laughs> well, I think the answer to whether the, is the juice, is it, is the, is the juice worth the squeeze? That's a, that's a critical business question that I think every CMO or every COO should ask themselves. Um, I would say that it is worth the squeeze, but not if it takes you three months to get there. Um, I mean, if it takes you three months to get to a simple, to the answers to a simple question, then you got some serious problems to figure out. Um, I think, I think companies are, we're so busy executing that sometimes we forget to mind the the fundamentals and the details of running a business. Yeah. Uh, and it's easy for me to say that, but like, you know, acquisitions happen, integrations sometimes don't happen. Um, and, and, but we've got to keep on executing. We, we got to keep rolling in the revenue to, to run our business. And, and I think sometimes that clouds our thinking and we forget to mind the details and the tires and wheels pointed in the same direction as the steering wheel. But eventually we run into a roadblock, we run into um, a speed bump or a pothole. And, and, and for every speed bump and every pothole that we hit, our tires, our wheels lose their alignment with the steering wheel. It's not going to be noticeable. It's always going to be some fraction of misalignment. Mm-hmm. But, but as that happens over time, um, even though your steering wheel is pointed straight, uh, the car starts to drift left or right. And um, at first, the drift is imperceptible, but over time, you start to realize that, oh, man, I'm, I'm actually 10 degrees off of where I'm pointed. And that's kind of a problem, especially if there's a wall on the left or the right um, or a cliff. And so that happens in business all the time. Uh, we're busy executing. We're busy driving a car down the road, hitting speed bumps and potholes along the way because that's the part of the part of business. Um but sometimes we need to give ourselves permission to take a step back, maybe pause, and um, and evaluate uh, where are we driving to, how far have we driven, and do we need to do anything to realign ourselves to make sure we're driving in the direction that we intend. Um, yeah. that, that happens in everything that we do. It happens in experience management, um, but it also happens with the data within the business. And it's so important to, to not forget that about the data because we all want to improve experiences for employees and our customers, um, but how we measure that improvement and how we identify what to improve and by how much relies on data. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's either data or intuition. And I would, I would, I would opt for data over intuition. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, but unfortunately, that data that we use to make our business decisions sometimes isn't clean, isn't complete, isn't accessible, um, or all the above. And uh, and if it is accessible, is it even reliable? How do we know? Yeah. Um, and I think you know, just those are the the landmines that I think many businesses and you know have to put up with. But somehow, um, minding those de- <clears throat> minding those details 
um, and giving ourselves permission to realign our business according to the plan um, is something we should do. We just, but I don't really, I don't really see too many companies really thinking about that from a data context and, and realizing their data as an asset that could be mined and leveraged and even, and even valued um, uh, and used as leverage if they're being acquired or for some other purpose. Yeah. And I just want to, I just want to circle back to one thing you had said earlier, which is um, the effort involved in getting, you know, the right metrics for your organization. And it's really hard. It's hard, it's hard work, but to your point, you can be intentional and focused on something where you can do it by intuition. Here's, here's the, the lesson you have to come to grips with and know uh, going uh, up front is that there's no perfect metric that measures customer loyalty because it's a very human and emotionally based thing, right? But if you can get agreement that these factors are probably a set of factors that are highly correlated to that, even though imperfect, you know, just accept that, right, Sammy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's, and the thing about it too is, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's no one metric and there's even if you're just looking at experience metrics or if you're looking at business metrics, there's no one metric they should ever rely on. There should be a combination of metrics. Um, and, it, you know, the one thing it needs to deliver for you is context. Um, so whether you use NPS as your experience metric or some other metric, um, that by itself isn't good enough. Um, it needs to be balanced with other things to give you that additional context. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that the temperature outside is, is 70 degrees. Um, you know, that's not good enough. Um, mm. I need additional information in order for me to figure out um, if we're going in one direction or another direction and to help me make a decision on what we need to do as a business. Um, and I think I see too many organizations relying on a single thing or a single metric um, as their sort of barometer of success. And I don't, yeah. you know, I'm just, dis, I'm disappointed by that, but encouraged by others that um, want to at least explore uh, other avenues. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things that we do as, as consultants and people who have been former practitioners is, you know, we, we accelerate the path <laughs> having, having um, hit, hit, potholes and, and, and minefields along the way and le learn valuable lessons and tried certain things, we can really accel accelerate those things for leaders um, and say, don't, don't waste your time going after that because it's just not worth it. Ju that juice is not worth the squeeze. Um, I, I want to just say uh, we covered so much good ground today, um, clicking on, double clicking on so many important things and pulling out so many gems. I really appreciated your, your story about, you know, how, whether it's Verizon, this big company or Medallia, smaller companies, helping larger companies grow. There are so many commonalities and that data is going to be critical uh, to capture data that, you know, if you're in the early stages of your maturity in terms of customer experience, you probably don't have any of this data. And we do want to, we don't want to get, get you over intimidated. We want to give you hope, <laughs> right? That you can get there. Some of these, some of these, uh, it sounds like war stories that Sammy was sharing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I wouldn't want to discourage anybody. You know, the thing about it is um, the models that we built when I was at Verizon or even at the manufacturing company, yeah. they were pretty robust. Um, and it really helped the business make the right decisions and to change underlying business processes and, and organizational structure so that you can deliver a better experience consistently. Um, but, you know, none of it happened overnight. Uh, and, and it's okay to start small and crawl before you can walk. Um, it's perfectly normal. The manufacturer that I was at was in the building products industry. Um, and, you know, of course they had, you know, we had the entire end-to-end customer journey mapped for the segments that we were targeting for our program initially. And, and so we started with a map and we identified the particular pain points in different parts of the map, depending on the expectations for that segment, um, and identified critical pain points in which we knew things typically go wrong. And once we identified them, we worked our way backwards into the business to figure out what, what processes make those experiences happen and what feeds those processes. And once we understood um, what feed the, you know, what data feeds those, pro- which processes and which data feeds those processes, and, you know, working backwards within the business, then it kind of helped us focus our effort on what we need to address in a business Um and what evidence do we need to take a look at to figure out if we addressed it, um, here's the improvement that we could hang our hats on. Um, you know, we kind of had to start small and focus on just some basic micro fulfillment aspects of the business and then, um, you know, measure it over time and then be able to tell that story of human change. You know, because without that story, it doesn't really come to life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you you uh, shed some light on some really important things that can help a lot of people. And uh, I thank you so much for being on the show today, Sammy. If there's people who want to get a, get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to reach you? Oh, best way probably would be through LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And uh, another way is just send me an email at, at my first and last name put together, SammyNewar at gmail.com. And it's N-U-W-A-R? That's right. Okay. All right, Sammy, what a pleasure for having you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.